Hey everyone, and welcome to the Hitchhiker's Guide to AI. I'm your host, AJ Asver, and I'm really excited for you to join me on this ride. For this episode, I'm going to be joined by Josh Albrecht. Josh Albrecht is the CTO and founder of Generally Intelligent, an AI research company that is pushing the boundaries of what we're able to do with autonomous AI agents and developing AI that can work in real-world scenarios. For example, one that can operate in your web browser, one that can help you with code, and they're really, really pushing on how we can get AIs to learn um, in a simulated environment. Um, I'm really excited to talk to, about what he's working on. Um, there's gonna be a lot of ex exciting questions we're gonna cover, including where we are with AGI, what the future looks like in a world where we have these autonomous agents operating everywhere. And Josh is also gonna tell us a little bit about um, what it is like to be an AI researcher, um, especially with everything moving so quickly um, in AI right now, and the fund that he's raised as well, and what uh, he looks for when he's investing in an AI company. So without further ado, um, join me on this journey in the Hitchhiker's Guide to AI. Hey Josh, how's it going? Great. Nice to chat with you, AJ. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you um, being down to do this podcast with me. It's really exciting to, to finally get the chance to chat. And I feel like in the couple of months since we initially talked about this, so much has happened in AI. Yeah. <laughs> Probably all the questions I was going to ask you like a month or two ago already feel like they're stale. <laughs> I don't think they're stale. I think there's lots of questions that are important questions to think about for the future. So. Yes, and we're going to jump into them. I'm going to give you an easy one to start with, which is what is AGI exactly? You think that's an easy one, but honestly, actually, one of the things we were talking about internally is we kind of want to stop using that word because it just means so many different things to so many different people. I mean, technically, what the phrase means is artificial general intelligence. And people often use this to refer to a computer system that's capable of doing almost anything. But then what do you mean by anything? Like, of course, it can't go faster than the speed of light. Well, okay, so not, not anything, anything, but like maybe anything that people do. But then people also use it to mean things that can, you know, maybe it can do more than people can do, or maybe it can do less than people do in a certain domain. But it's kind of contentious where exactly that kind of level is for different abilities that some that any person might call AGI. And so we're trying to stay away from that term as much as possible uh, and talk maybe more a little bit about like, human level AI or human like AI or average performance in terms of average accuracy on some test set that's similar to humans. Like these are, these are kinds of things that are a little bit more specific and a little bit easier to quantify and a little bit less contentious maybe. If we talk about it as being human level AI and you mentioned actually in that case, like having some tests that you perform and then mm -hmm. see if the AI can complete it. Well, it's interesting to me you mentioned that because GPT-4 recently did a bunch of benchmark tests mm -hmm. in their research and they went from being the bottom percentile, I think, for like standard tests, like the you know GMAT tests and MBA tests to now being in like the top 30% or something like that. So does yeah. that mean we have AGI already? It's, it's an interesting question. I think it's something that people are still grappling with is, you know, if some system does so well on these multiple choice tests, does that mean that we have AGI? In one sense, sort of, yes. Like in a sense, it's, you know, doing better than an average person on like the, you know, GMAT or SAT or whatever, right? But in another sense, like you can't just have that thing go and be a chemist or go and be a lawyer, right? And so there's actually a lot of stuff that's more difficult to test. And so a lot of the things that we think about, especially around agents is, you know, it's not necessarily just your ability to do well on these multiple choice questions, but it's really your capability, your ability to act or accomplish some goal. That's what we really want as people when we're trying to make, you know, effective AI systems. And that's a little bit harder to measure. Like if you want to make a really good CEO, kind of the only way to know if you succeeded is like, 
have them be a CEO, wait a few years and see what happened to your stock price. But like, that's obviously an expensive, you know, thing to run. So how do you, how you evaluate these is actually a really interesting question. Yeah, it, it is a really interesting one. As you mentioned, the the example of the CEO, there isn't really a good test for that, as you said, besides like mm -hmm. having them run a company. I guess you could simulate that in some kind of environment, but then you need all these other agents to interact with this CEO yep. that also need to be good too. <laughs> but um, coming back to your point earlier about, you know, what we need to have these different types of tests. Do you think there's a world in which we're going to have these tests one day and we'll be like, oh, an AI just passed all those tests. We have AGI. Is it going to be like that obvious or is it going to suddenly creep up on us and we'll be like, oh, okay. I think each person is going to wake up one day and have this realization of like, wow, that's a lot better than I expected as it keeps getting better because these abilities keep getting better and better over time. But I do think that the broader point, it's a little bit more like self-driving cars, like internally at Tesla, they have a huge battery of tests for all the weird stuff that happens while you're driving. Right. And so it's not just like, can you drive straight for an hour? Like that's actually pretty easy. We can do that a long time ago. The really hard part about self-driving is all these little corner cases and weird things that happen. Like I saw one of my favorite ones is there's a car driving behind a truck and on that truck are a bunch of stoplights that are off obviously, oh, wow. but it's so yeah. confused. It's like, oh no, I got to stop. Oh no, there's a stoplight. The stoplight is out. No, no. It's like, no, I mean, this just happens. Right. Uh, so there's all these weird things that come up and we're going to end up, I think, with just much bigger, broader test suites. And I think people are going to have to put a lot more effort into doing the evaluation and not just into building these capabilities, but into really deciding, like, is this robust enough for me to deploy? Like, do I trust this, et cetera? Yeah. And when you talk about self-driving cars, it seems like a great example, because I feel like we are trying all these different ways to get self-driving cars to work. And now we actually have self-driving cars in San Francisco, mm -hmm. picking up people, dropping them off. But I've often been stuck behind a self-driving car that's like stuck at an intersection because it doesn't know what to do. And it makes me wonder like, actually, do we need to solve AGI first before we can solve self-driving cars? Some people I think at OpenAI were joking that it's almost possible that we get AGI before we get self-driving cars. Uh -huh. uh, just because doing things in the physical world is really, really hard and really dangerous. If you're you know, a bot that's like editing text, if that thing goes wrong, at most it deletes some of your text. If your thing that's driving at two tons of metal at 70 miles an hour goes wrong, like it can have very serious consequences. So in a sense, we might actually have like things that almost are capable of doing pretty much anything you want on your computer and still be pretty far from self-driving cars. I think one interesting uh, way of uh, creating like a simulation for that will be to have like a self-driving car environment, but all the self-driving cars are moving very slowly and instead they use LLMs like GPT-4, <laughs> for example, and it just translates what it sees into language and it just gives it a self-driving car and it's just using GPT-4 to work out what to do. And my guess is it would probably be better than the equivalent like system when it comes to edge cases, trying to navigate using like all the different vision like processing it has and like neural networks and stuff. That That's a very difficult problem. Yeah, we, we don't work yeah. on that. That's too hard for us. We just, we just do regular boring uh, AI applied to computers. <laughs> Right. So, yeah. And that's, that brings us on to my next question, which is what does generally intelligent do? Like what, what are you guys trying to do in the AI space? Are you trying to build AGI? Are you focused on a particular area? At a high level, our goal is to make more general, more capable, more robust, safer AI systems. Uh, specifically within that, we're focused on agents. And even more specifically within that, we're focused on what I would call sort of digital agents. So agents that act on your computer, say in your web browser, on your desktop, in your editor, that, that type of stuff, those types of environments. The recent advancements in AI where they've 
been these agents running on top of GPD-4, for example, that can kind of autonomously complete tasks, like baby AGI is one I've talked about before, AutoGPT. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of the type of agent you mean where it's running on top of an LLM or are you developing a specific model for agents that's different? Uh, it's a little bit of, of both, basically. Like right now, those things that are built on top of those language models, those language models were definitely not trained with this use case in mind. Uh, and so it's possible to kind of hack out an agent on top of GPT by asking like, what should I do next? And then you do that thing. It has right. no idea of like cause and effect or the fact that like it is a participant in the world and its actions affect things that happen. And so it actually makes it not that well suited for these types of agent systems. So we are developing our own types of systems that are better suited for these kinds of, uh, of things. And yeah, it's, it, a little bit of it is kind of taking these language models or making our own language models and kind of adapting to this. And a little bit is thinking about kind of more from first principles, how do you want to like build on, build something that is more of an agent from scratch? Yeah. And when you say, um, taking existing language models, like obviously language models are trained on language, they're trained on sequences of text. Mm -hmm. Are you training on sequences of actions or are you just taking an LLM translating actions into text in order to kind of, uh, tune it better to be an agent? You can kind of think about acting in the world as like a series of text, and then that makes it actually really easy for the language model or easier for the language model to decide what to do or to pick a good action. But then you still need to be able to train the system and help it know what types of thoughts are helpful, what types of how, how well did this action work out and that sort of thing. You don't like, as you mentioned today, LLMs don't really have that feedback. And probably this particular use case of LLMs didn't really exist anywhere. So it's not even in its training data, which yeah. brings um, as to another interesting space, which is the whole idea of like emergent behavior in these language models, right? Like, I don't think maybe a year ago, even when you looked at GPT-3 and you thought about this use case of having this autonomous agent, that's like essentially having an inner voice in its head, right? That that would be a use case that would work with the language model. Why do you think it is that we're starting to see this interesting emergent behavior happen that, you know, wasn't part of the training set or wasn't something expected? Well, I think one of the interesting things is there's a lot of stuff on the internet. So it is sort of part of the, uh, of the training behavior. If you imagine a transcript of like a Twitch gamer, who's like, you know, narrating their thoughts as they're playing a game in a mm -hmm. sense, like some of that data does end up online, which is kind of interesting. So it has seen a little bit of it. And in the past, we have seen a lot of interesting emergent behaviors with language models in terms of, you know, people didn't really expect that they would be able to do even sort of the zero shot behavior. That was one of the really cool mm -hmm. things about GPT-3, for example. So I think something that's pretty interesting about them is like these capabilities that you get for free sort of from such a seemingly simple task that they're trained on of just predicting the next word. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that I think Ilya Sutra said about how um, LLMs work is that, you know, everyone talks about like, well, obviously it's not artificial general intelligence. All it's doing is predicting the next token, right? But his argument was that in order to do that, it actually has to have some model of the world somewhere mm -hmm. in those layers of right neural network. I mean, it is doing it statistically, but it's based on some model of the world, right? And so maybe mm -hmm. that's how this emergent behavior is happening. Um, you also mentioned that you're looking at building other types of models that aren't necessarily LLM based that are more focused on like agents. What does that look like? When I say that, I mean, taking these things almost as a component um, mm -hmm. and thinking, what can you build on top of these language models with these as a component? like. One thing you can imagine is using the language model to generate options. It's pretty good at generating text. And then maybe something else that takes that and then uses it to act. Or you could use it to generate code and then run that code as a way of acting. And you might also be able to use it to estimate like uncertainty or say, you know, should I talk to the user now? So there's lots of places where you can kind of imagine almost more specialized 
uses of language models within a larger system. And I think that is something that starts to get around a lot of the things that people brought up as limitations on language models that are like, oh, like this is an AGI. It's not really thinking like it doesn't have any scratch mm -hmm. space or like it can't remember anything. Yeah, but what if you're using this extra memory and you're asking like, what should I remember? What should I recall? Well, now you yeah. start to get a lot closer to how we think as people. But, so one of the things you mentioned um, when you were describing how you guys are approaching agents on top of LLMs is this idea of memory, right? And today, memory is a big problem because there's only so much token space available when you're, when you're using one of these models like GPT. So you have to basically outsource memory into some other database. Now, that could be a vector database. It could be in memory of the computer. And then you have to look up things and then kind of inject it back into the prompt when it's relevant to that conversation or that completion. How, how are you guys thinking about memory uh, for your agents? More and more as we've been playing around with it and looking at tools that are out there, like it's possible that actually these systems are gonna be much better than us at remembering things. Mm -hmm. Like if I try and remember a number, a 10 digit number until tomorrow, I'm pretty unlikely, but our computers can just remember everything that happened. And really right. the question then is more one of selection and curation and like, which facts are important to remember and store for later? What aspects of them do you want to store? And what aspects do you want to pay attention to when you're recalling things? And that actually turns out to be not a crazy hard problem. So a lot of this stuff, I think, is going to be a lot simpler than, than maybe it seemed originally. A question is then, like, how do you train these systems? Because it's hard to train memory systems. It's not as easy as the, like, transformer type of training. Uh, there's, mm -hmm. You can't get gradient in quite the same way, but it... You, you might not have to do a great job to make some really powerful systems here. And when you say train the systems, are you talking about essentially building or developing models specifically around memory versus just yeah. using like a vector database? Even database? when you're using the vector database, it's like, what should you query? How should you embed them? Which things yep. should you bring back? How many of them should you bring back? Like, actually, the, the vector database sort of masks the problem of what you mean by similarity. Yeah, that, that is an, an, an interesting problem there because you're basically relying on whatever the encoding you're using the vector right. database to, right. to work out similarity in that. I mean, a lot of people are using, for example, that the ADA embedding that, that OpenAI provides. So that's like one type of looking mm -hmm. at similarity, right, in one vector space. You do that. The other thing I've noticed as well as I've explored this area is like chunk size can make a big difference, right? Because if you're just like bringing in small um, snippets, right? Mm -hmm. You may not have enough context around that particular topic or that knowledge base to actually yeah. understand it fully. And when yeah. you're just like scattered across multiple snippets, it's kind of harder for GPT-4 to really like that, that as input. You know, if the question is, what do we mean by similarity? Well, you and I, when we're talking about recalling memories from the past or recalling other information, we don't have like 10,000 different notions of similarity, right? We often have like a pretty small number. So you can imagine making embeddings that specialize in all these different ones. And then the question is just like, which one should you pick as your notion of embedding or as your notion of similarity? And now the problem might kind of be solved. It might not yeah. be, there might be a lot more there, but I'm just saying we, we might actually end up with a lot more powerful, interesting systems than I think people were expecting in the past year or two. Right, because imagine if you have an agent with perfect memory versus humans, which have mm -hmm. like limited memory somewhat, right? You can complete yeah. a lot more complicated tasks and like you can build experts with like a lot more information, right? In the heads, right. essentially. Right. Um, the other thing it made me think about as you talked about that approach was latency. So mm -hmm. with GPT-4, especially, I've been playing around with it. Um, and for some reason at night, it's just really slow, which is when every, I guess that's because everybody, everyone's doing their fun AI projects at night. And that makes running agents on top of it hard because an agent does multiple multiple turns, right? Where it's like, I'm thinking, I'm observing, and then I'm acting. And that's like one turn. And then I'm picking a tool. 
And so you end up doing like three or four turns. Each one is taking multiple seconds. We're not used to that level of latency when we use other products mm -hmm. today, right? How do you solve that problem? That's actually one of the things that we're really interested in exploring a lot is like, what does that interface look like to these agents? A part of that interface is the latency. And that'll always actually be there when you're acting, right? Like mm -hmm. fundamentally, like let's say you're trying to order Instacart groceries. One of the things that's so frustrating is like clicking on the thing just takes a long time. Like to put all the objects yep. in your cart just takes time, no matter how smart you are and how fast you click. Uh, and so the agents are always going to be taking time to do stuff. And so how do you interact with that as a user? Like if you tell it, order these things on Instacart, are you going to sit there and watch it do the whole thing? That's kind of obnoxious. But then should it go away and come back to you later and like interrupt you? How do you like deal with these kind of like different levels of latency? This is going to be a really a thing that separates like really good products from really bad products, especially as we go more towards the, the agentic world. What does the solution look like for this? Is it like showing the end customer what is happening within the agent so they don't feel a sense of latency because you can see progress. Is it actually optimizing the the way you, you know, hit these LLMs with different types of prompts? Is it optimizing the LLM itself? Like, how do you solve this? Basically, there's different things for different tasks. Like, you might want a different interface if you're ordering groceries versus if you're doing something mission critical. Do you really want to see all the ways that it goes wrong and gets everything wrong? If it's a low priority task, do you ever want to be interrupted about it? Maybe you just want to forget about it entirely and just hope that it happens, right? There's just totally different things. You might also have a thing where like it has some notion of like confidence, like how far off the rails is it? How much does it need to come back to you? How important is this? Maybe it even has a model of you and can answer the question as you that it's going to ask you and then just yep. continue along that way and then just come back to you later and be like, well, this is what I thought you wanted. Like, I hope it worked out. That maybe works for some use cases, maybe doesn't work for others. Do you want to optimize the latency so you don't have to wait? Do you want to run a bunch of things in parallel? There's actually a lot of different options and levers to play with. And I think it's going to require a sort of almost whole new like design language and way of thinking about interacting with our computers. The bit about interacting with your computers and the way you think about that, I think is an important one. Because if you think about if you actually had, let's say an intern do some of the jobs of this agent, right? Mm -hmm. You would text them or you'd message them on Slack and you wouldn't yeah. expect them to like immediately respond with the answer. They have to go do work, right? Yeah. But our experience of using chatbots, especially at GPT, for example, is that it immediately starts generating tokens for you, right? So your expectation, if you use the same interface, with an agent is that it will do the same thing. And so I think to your point, we need to somehow make people think this is more like a person you're talking to that's gonna go do things and come back. And maybe what you want is for the chat part of it to respond very quickly. So it's always responding, but maybe what it says in the chat is like, oh, that's really interesting. Let me go take a look. I'll let you know when I finish it, right? So it's like, or maybe, maybe it pings you via Slack. Maybe it sends you emails. Like maybe it uses other communication mechanisms that make sense for you. Yeah. I like that idea that you just mentioned of it kind of just telling you like I'm working on this and then giving you updates because mm -hmm. that kind of makes you feel like there's less latency because you're like, oh, it's working on it, right? I think setting the right expectations. GPT is not necessarily doing a good job of that, of like setting the expectations of like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like this is going to take forever and I'm going to give you lies. Like yeah. that's really not the expectation that's set in, the, in that uh, user experience. You have this illusion that it's a synchronous system, right? Where like you're asking a question and it's going and it's like thinking and it's printing statements as it thinks. That's actually not what's happening. It's doing a bunch of turns where it's just this prompt, complete this prompt over and over again, and it's printing every completion. So actually what's happening behind the scenes, it's this like actually this like stop and start experience where it's like doing a bunch of different um, requests, right? And you can parallelize those, as you said. Right. Um, right. It's harder to do that in a sequence, though, when you're trying to do a sequence of thought. Have you, have you guys thought about ways to kind of paralyze um, the chain of thought in some way? Like, is there smart ways of doing that? It, you have this kind of chain of thought as you're going through and thinking about something, but you don't necessarily need to make this sequential. 
you might in a situation ask like, well, what are all the questions that I could ask that would be helpful for me to decide the right thing to do next? And instead of answering them one at a time, you could do them all in parallel. You could have a hundred copies, go answer all the questions and then put them all back together again and then answer the original question. So it actually doesn't need to go in sequence. And I think that's another thing that we'll start to see is like, when do you want to parallelize? How much do you want to parallelize? How much do you want to go sequentially? Where are the like limiting bottlenecks? The more you can take away from it being sequential, the faster it can be. Yeah, I mean, one interesting way to do that would be um, you have the agent essentially generate three different approaches to solve the problem, right? And then you can kind of have it do all three of those at the same time, come back mm -hmm. and combine the ideas to come up with an answer, which is which is really yeah. cool to think about. Um, you're the first AI researcher that I've had on the podcast, though I know I've, I've known you for a while, but it, but it's the first time I'm, I'm getting a chance to interview one. And I think for many people that don't spend all their time in AI, especially in the research side, I know many people that are like hacking on AI, building things on top of GPT-4. We probably don't have a good idea of what AI researchers actually do. What is your day-to-day -day like when you're trying to build these agents and, and do this research? Even a lot of like software engineers that apply also have this kind of misconception like AI research is like this special different thing. At the end yeah. of the day, it's really mostly software engineering. Like it's 90% software engineering, basically. We're just writing a bunch of code, you know, just twiddling our fingers on our keyboard, like looking at bugs, just the same kind of thing that we'd be doing if we were making some SaaS app or some consumer web app or whatever, except the bugs happen to be related to the weights or the models or the servers that we're training things on or the data or the pre-processing of the data. A lot of the tasks end up being very, very similar to normal software engineering jobs. The iteration times take a while, right? When you're training a model and then you have to go and test the model and it takes a while to train it. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how everyone deals with this, but how we deal with this is building our own tools so that that doesn't take so long uh, because we hate having to like wait around for things and have to like do everything manually. So we've built a bunch of tools internally to kind of reduce those iteration cycles to make it so we can iterate on much smaller models, et cetera. You do have to wait for these things to train and they can take hours or days or even weeks sometimes. Um, but usually you'll be doing a bunch of those in parallel. You can kind of watch them happening over time. Maybe you'll stop them early. It's actually much better than the physical sciences with like mice or biology where you have to wait a really long time for cells to grow. Like we can get results much faster and much more reproducibly, which ends up being just a much more pleasant scientific experience at least. Okay, talk me through it. I love to hear just yeah. like high level. What are your arguments uh, for yeah. acceleration versus deceleration? Yeah, I mean, the deceleration ones are a little bit more obvious basically. It's like, well, okay. I mean, if things are changing so rapidly, like we want time for people to adjust we want time to like understand the capabilities of these models. We want time for sort of the theory side of things to catch up. It would be a little bit closer to historically how the rate of change that has been happening. So that might be a little bit safer from like an outside view. Um, people are worried about, you know, all sorts of different risks that come from these things. So we'd have a little more time to address those. Okay, that makes sense. There's like good arguments for deceleration. For acceleration, I think some of the arguments are actually similar arguments. Like if you're concerned about safety and you're concerned about you know, the societal impact of these, there's a case that maybe you should go much, much faster now so that you break things, not like horribly, but enough that people kind of wake up and say like, oh, wow, this is a big shift. Like we really do need to change things. We need to think about like how we, you know, allocate capital in society, how we tax things, think about employment, think about like all these, like what happens, you know, when we have AI systems that are capable of doing many of the things we do for work, like how does that change? Like we could have a much bigger conversation if there was a very rapid shift, then if there's one, if this happens slowly over decades, then what's really going to happen is you're just going to get kind of business as usual, where, but it's like, you know, slowly, like there's sort of a slowly eroding away, like the, you know, power that labor has because like, oh, okay, like how much can, do you want to pay a person versus paying AI? Like you just have this like slow creep of things happening. And you never really get a chance to take a step back and say, do we want to re-architect this whole thing? Do we want to change things up? 
So I think that's, that's one of the most compelling reasons to me for going even faster. Another is that it might, like there are fundamental limits to how fast we can go, like in terms of hardware and in terms of uh, just the amount of compute that's available at all. Uh, and so if we go really fast right now, we might not be able to go that much faster uh, and be, uh, get to a place where we, we make these really powerful systems before we have so much compute laying around that they would be able to do a lot. Like right now, GPT-4 takes so many GPUs, it's so expensive to run, it's so slow. Uh, if you wait 10 or 20 years, uh, you don't push on the algorithms and now all of a sudden you have all this hardware laying around and now you make the algorithms better. Like now you have a much sharper change where just all of a sudden overnight, like things are just dramatically more capable than they were. And so, you know, you can imagine that actually being a little bit more dangerous even. One of the things I've been thinking about that I think Andre Kapathy kind of talked about is this analogy that like GPT or any of these LLMs are kind of like very slow language-based CPUs. They're like mm -hmm. CPUs that use natural language, right? And the power of that is like all of a sudden we could abstract something that was like assembly code into a language that anyone can understand and talk mm -hmm. about, right? But because they're slow, we're limited by how much we can use that CPU, right? The clock yeah. speed is like a very slow clock speed. But now yeah. imagine a world where you could like have a language-based program, but the clock speed is like the speed of, I don't know, 1990s computer, right? That's like extremely powerful. I feel like in that case, these agents would be like immediately um, solving problems coming up with answers and we'll hit like the limitations of other things like bandwidth, the internet speed and stuff like that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, that seems like both exciting and terrifying at the same time. Yeah. Um, there have been folks in the technology industry as recently as the last couple of weeks. Um, I think like one more vocal one has been like Chamath Palipatia urging for regulation in this space mm -hmm. and like government to step in to regulate. I've been really struggling to understand how that would work, especially when there are so many open source models available. There's also this argument of like, oh, that's going to slow us down and then foreign adversaries will be able to move faster. I'm curious what your thoughts thoughts are on like whether AI should be regulated this at this stage. I think it definitely makes sense to start thinking about it. Like it takes so long on the regulatory side that it's at least worth starting to have that conversation. I think in practice, it's hard to know, as you said, like what exactly would those regulations be if you had to write them today? The concerns are not as big as once we start to get a little bit further in the future and these things become much more powerful, much more capable, like how should access be governed? Do you really want to have a language model that can tell you how to make some super virus? Like this mm -hmm. just doesn't seem like a good thing that as a society we really want to put out there, right? It can't today. It'll just lie to you and like tell you weird things about proteins. But, you know, do we want that? We don't really want that, right? So how do you reconcile that with the, kind of the trajectory that things are on? And similarly, the other, the opposite extreme of it of like, well, do you want only one corporation to totally control access to these really powerful technologies? Like that doesn't seem right either. Like, do you want it to be more like a public good or more like a utility? Maybe those are definitely heavily regulated, right? So I think it's worth starting to have this conversation and think about specifically what types of capabilities, what levels of capabilities would we want to have, what types of restrictions, what types of access, et cetera. I do think it's important that we start thinking about this. I am a little bit more skeptical that like, at least in the US, how I've seen 
you know, government work that they'd be able to wrap their heads around this. I mean, we've seen like, you know, the Congress hearings for all kinds of different like technology companies and the questions that are asked are so far away from like what's happening and the kind of state of the art in technology. For AI, I feel like it's going to just be one really scary and at the same time really hard for, for people to wrap their head around it. Yeah, which I think is actually why it's, it's worth starting to have this conversation now is it's going to take some time to educate people and get people up to speed about how do these systems work what are the pitfalls? What are the pros? What are the cons? Like just helping people establish a better understanding of this is just going to take some time. And it seems worth doing that now. The, the systems are just going to be more complicated and more powerful in the future. So that problem is not going to get that much easier uh, unless we kind of start putting in some effort now. With the regulation piece in mind, one of the things you and I have talked about in the past is like, how do you measure the impact of AGI on society? And you described this really interesting concept to me that I haven't been able to stop thinking about, which is kind of universal unemployment. In the past, what we've seen is that technology has normally led to actually more employment and more jobs and like, you know, more growth, et cetera. And I think a lot of people kind of naively expect this to continue into the future. But I, I think that this time is a little bit different. There is some work uh, about this. There are some economists that are starting to look at this and say, you know what, actually, it is a little bit different this time. Like as we start to make technologies that actually are kind of replacing human intellectual labor that are like able to think in the same way as, as people, or at least like do the same types of like thought work and knowledge work as people, you know, and, and also as we go further into the future, we make more advanced robotics capabilities and we're able to do more physical labor that people are able to do. Eventually, like the point of AGI, going back to what we said at the very beginning, right? Artificial general intelligence, like it's a thing that's meant to be something that can solve a huge range of problems. So eventually when you keep pushing on this and keep increasing capabilities, you get to this point where you know, for most of the things that people can do, it turns out it might be cheaper to have a computer do those things. And at that point, I think things really shift. Whereas a business, you know, it's nice to have employees and you like employing people and everything. And like, but eventually it's like, well, do I want to pay a person like 10 times as much as I can pay this other software thing to do it? You just end up, I think capitalism start pushing companies and people towards this like, well, I guess we should use a computer in this case instead of a person. If you play that out, when you really have a system that's capable of doing most of the things with people, like, what does that really mean? It really means that there aren't really jobs left for people. So in a sense, like AGI in one sense kind of means full unemployment. Like if you really had a system that was capable of doing everything a person could do, but cheaper, then you really don't have a place for labor. And that's a very different world from where we are today. But that's kind of the like ultimate goal of what people that are working on, you know, AGI are working towards. Um, I also... Uh, remember that you guys also have um, a venture capital firm that you have a small fund, Outset Capital, um, and you invest in uh, AI startups. So assuming that these startups will still have humans that need to do jobs in the future, or maybe that's part of the thesis. I'm curious, like, how are you guys <laughs> thinking about the space? It's moving so quickly. Moats is like a big thing that comes up, like defensibility. Like, what's, what's your kind of thesis when it comes to investing in AI? Our thesis is, you know, a little bit simpler in, in a sense like we've actually been around for a little while and thinking about this even before the whole current ai hype and craze and everything our kind of idea is that this is going to have a huge impact uh and it might not be immediate you know we, we're not going to have full unemployment tomorrow right but as we really continue improving these technologies and deploy them more widely it is going to have a really big impact on really everything i think probably as big or maybe even bigger than kind of the changes that we saw in the 90s with, with the internet, right? Like, it's just going to have a huge impact on so many different facets of life. And so I think when we're looking at companies that kind of, you know, it's the next like Amazon or Google or Facebook or these mm -hmm. companies that like really took advantage of that change to, be, to make a huge lasting company. Those are really the types of companies that we're looking for. And for those moats, like it is, it is pretty difficult right now to think about 
what are those, you know, kind of things that make a really good business? Like, is it going to be, you know, network effects are probably still real. Um, like if you make some kind of new network or whatever, it's just hard to like compete with those kinds of things. Um, but there are a lot of other modes that might not be as important, like switching costs, right? Like right now, you know, if you implement some solution, there's a cost to you switching. That cost is really you finding and paying programmers. As the cost of code and integrations dramatically drops, then, you know, the switching cost is a lot lower. So it's a lot easier for you to switch all the things. So there are some modes that actually, well, I think become a lot less important, but there are all sorts of new opportunities and things as well. So like, what does the economy look like when a, a large fraction of the work is being done by agents? That's a very open question. And so who knows like what the protectable or defensible businesses look like there? Does capitalism even look the same, you know, a hundred years from now, who knows, right? So there, there could be much, much larger things that, that change. That's a, a big question for us to end on. I think does capital even look the same a hundred years from now, maybe even 50 years from now, I often wonder what my kids experience of like work is going to be like when they turn 18, they're only four years old right now. And I talk to them about AI and they're like, wait, so AI is going to be running everything. And I'm like, no, but maybe <laughs> in the future. Um, but we just don't know, like you said, right. Um, Josh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. This was a riveting conversation. Really appreciate you being down to chat with me on the Hitchhiker's Guide to AI. And for everyone listening, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Um, please hit subscribe if you enjoy the podcast. Um, and Josh, where can we find you? Just go to generallyintelligent.com or, or Twitter. Um, we're, on, we're on both. Awesome. Thank you so much, Josh. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye.